0: Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck
1: Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 352nd edition of Talk to Tuesday and brought to you today by ICD University, inviting you to attend two must-see upcoming webcasts. And joining me this morning is my guest co-host, Dr. Julian Ugarte-Hopkins. Dr. Ugarte-Hopkins is a physician advisor of case management, utilization, and clinical documentation at ProHealthcare in the great state of Wisconsin. And good morning, Julian, And thanks very much for sitting in this morning for Dr. Erica Reamer.
2: Hi, Chuck, and good morning, everybody.
1: Our least story this morning is about one of the hottest topics in healthcare. Of course, you know what that is, social determinants of health.
2: That's right. Social determinants of health have a new face. That's because more natural and man-made disasters, business closures, and loss of pensions for an increasing number of older adults are all contributing to a population of folks who are turning up at hospitals and clinics.
1: And returning with the news update on this developing story is Alan Fink-Samnick.
2: Also on today's broadcast, we'll hear the latest in regulations from Washington. That's when Stanley Nockmson with his popular Reg Watch segment returns.
1: And uh, joining us this morning with our Talk 10 Tuesday coding report is going to be Laurie Johnson. Lori's going to be reporting on the new payment models that coders must be confronting in 2019. And of course, you're going to be reporting on the need for collaboration among coding, clinical documentation, integrity professionals, and physician advisors when it comes to facing clinical validation denials. While we have much news to report during this season premiere of Talk 10 Tuesday, and we begin with ICD 10 Monitor National Correspondent Tim Powell. Tim's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored
0: by ICD University, inviting you to attend an important webcast on treating hospitalized patients with acute kidney disease. It's this Thursday, January 17th. Save $25 by using the coupon code TUESDAY. of the word TUESDAY to save $25. Your now is Jim Powell. Today I'd like to talk about how the government shutdown
3: is going to hit a special type of uh, person in health care, the Supplemental Security Disability, disability Income Recipients. A government shutdown will likely affect Social Security disability uh, patients, recipients who are applying for Medicare. By law, Social Security disability recipients must wait two years from the date of their receipt of disability benefits to qualify for Medicare. Delays in decisions caused by the shutdown could have a significant impact on these individuals, and the president has vowed that he won't budge an inch and is ready for the shutdown to last years. SSDI is available to Americans who have worked and paid into Social Security for a required number of quarters and face a long-term disability that limits their ability to work. After an application is approved, recipients get between $700 and $1,700 per month in disability insurance payments. The application process is long, and status is often only granted after an appeal. The good news is that during the shutdown, people already receiving SSDI payments will continue to receive these payments. The bad news is that for people waiting on hearings and processing of their SSDI applications may see a huge slowdown in the processing of their claims. For people waiting to get their Medicare benefits after, an SSDI, after being on SSDI for over two years, and they also have to wait to get their Medicare cards. While the judges are still working without pay, their administrative staff that assist with processing SSDI requests and hearings have been furloughed. Some states give SSDI recipients medical assistance, Some people on SSDI also qualify for Medicaid. If SSDI recipients do not receive medical assistance, medical expenses could possibly wipe out all of their benefits and impact healthcare providers. In a double whammy under new financial rules around revenue recognition, healthcare entities can't recognize revenue for patients that qualify for SSDI Medicare but have had the application process stopped by the furlough of federal workers and the absence of their Medicare cards. How does this happen in the real world? Let's say a patient is admitted to the hospital. They've been on SSPI for over two years and are waiting for their Medicare card. The hospital treats the patient as waiting to bill Medicare for the stay. As a result of the shutdown, the Medicare card is not an issue since they can't determine who is the contracted party or the amount that will be realized at the end of the period for financial statement purposes. They can't recognize revenue for the patient. And the timing of this couldn't be worse. It's hitting right at the year end for all December 31st healthcare providers. Now, accounting rules require the healthcare entities identify the customer. That means that Medicaid pending and now SSDI, Medicare pending patients, uh, health entities can't recognize revenue until the patient's actually enrolled in Medicare or Medicaid. So uh, with that, um, I guess I'm out of time. So back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks very much, Tim. That was Tim Pell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 monitor national correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's January the 15th, 2019. It's day 25 of the partial government shutdown, and you're listening to the 352nd edition of Talked in Tuesday. Stand by.
0: Your organization is at risk of losing revenue due to inaccurate coding of evaluation and management, E&M. Failure to properly code for E&M services can lead to failed audits, costly repayments, and an interruption of patient care. Master the coding of E&M services during a four-part webcast featuring Dr. Jeffrey Lehrman. This important webcast begins Wednesday, January 23rd and save $25 by using the coupon code TUESDAY. Just enter TUESDAY and save $25. To register, click on the handout tab in today's Talk 10 Tuesday. Register now to master the coding of E&M services with Dr. Jeffrey Lehrman, and save $25 using the coupon code TUESDAY.
1: Thanks, Clark. By the way, that webcast coupon code, Tuesday, is good for all ICD University webcasts, but only one per person and only available for webcasts. Now it's time for Watch, featuring healthcare industry IT authority, Stanley Knox. Good morning, Stanley. Hey, a lot of news is coming out of Washington these days. What do we need to know?
4: Good morning, Chuck. Certainly the big news is the partial federal shutdown, but fortunately for many of us, the Department of Health and Human Services is not heavily impacted. Their appropriation for 2019 had already been passed by Congress. Now, there are still some impacts as, uh, for example, the Food and Drug Administration gets some of their funding uh, from the Department of Agriculture, Uh, so some of the food inspection work uh, is not going on as we'd like to see it. But our friends at CMS and OCR and ONC continue their work, uh, except for yesterday's Snow Day, the surprise uh, big snow in Washington uh, shut down the federal government there. This uh, seems to be the year of the request for information, or the RFI as we affectionately know them, from HHS. Uh, We've previously discussed uh, the request for comments on EHR usability. Two other requests for information have recently been issued from HHS. One is from the Office for Civil Rights, which asked for comments regarding if and how the HIPAA privacy and security rules should be revised to better promote coordinated care. This is in keeping with the interoperability strategy, which CMS and ONC are continuing to pursue. Uh, In its press release, the Office for Civil Rights indicated that its primary goal in issuing this request for information is to identify whether certain HIPAA provisions unnecessarily, quote, limit or discourage information sharing needed for coordinated care or to facilitate the transformation to value-based care. So there is a recognition that it's possible the privacy and security rules are blocking some of the things that uh, CMS and ONC are attempting to accomplish. In addition to requesting that broad input on the HIPAA rules, the RFI also looked for comments on specific areas of the HIPAA privacy rule including encouraging information sharing for treatment and care coordination, facilitating parental involvement in care, addressing the opioid crisis, accounting for the disclosures of protected health information as required by the HITECH Act, and changing the current requirement for certain providers to make a good-faith effort to obtain an acknowledgement of the receipt of the Notice of Privacy Practices. Now, public comments on this are due by February 11th, and the RFI can be downloaded from the Federal Register. I certainly encourage people to take a look at that and send in some of their ideas to OCR. Uh, Another request for information has been issued by CMS regarding the potential conflict of interest for accrediting organizations, Uh, organizations such as the Joint Commission on Accrediting Healthcare Organizations, which are deemed by CMS so their accreditation serves as a substitute for state or federal reviews and accredits certain Medicare or Medicaid conditions have been met. Some of these organizations also offer consulting services to to assist entities in preparing for their accreditation programs, and CMS is looking at their current conflict of interest policies around those services and what changes might be made. CMS, in their press release, said they're concerned about the practice of offering both accrediting and consulting services and the financial relationships involved in this work, and that they might undermine the integrity of the accrediting services and erode the public's trust. Uh, some of their data shows that state level audits of healthcare facilities are uncovering serious issues that the accrediting organizations have missed Uh, uh, CMS is now taking action across the board to ensure the quality and safety of patient care through oversight of these accrediting organizations and lastly at the end of the year CMS published their final rule for their pathways to success which overhauls the Medicare Accountable Care Organization program four key items in that rule Our accountability and competition, it reduces the amount of time that an ACO can remain in the program without taking accountability for healthcare spending from six years to two. Uh, So uh, ACOs now have to take responsibility for reducing the cost of care. In quality, Pathways to Success expands access to high-quality telehealth services that are convenient to patients, including telehealth services provided at a patient's place of residence. They are also promoting beneficiary engagement and improved health outcomes by allowing ACOs to offer new incentive payments to beneficiaries for taking steps to achieve good health, uh, such as obtaining primary care services and necessary follow-up care. And it also establishes rigorous benchmarks by incorporating factors from regional Medicare spending to establish an ACOs benchmark during all periods, providing a more accurate point of comparison for evaluating ACO performance. Uh, Just as a uh, backdrop, the Medicare Shared Savings Program, the ACO program launched in 2012, currently serves over 10.4 million beneficiaries in fee-for-service Medicare, approximately one-quarter of those beneficiaries. Uh, Data on ACO performance shows that uh, over time, ACOs taking accountability for costs perform better than those that do not. And as a result of this rule, uh, the projected savings for Medicare totaled $2.9 billion over 10 years. Uh, that's it for me. Uh, back to you, Juliet.
2: Holy moly. There is never a dull moment, is there? Thank you, Stanley. That was Healthcare IT Authority, Stanley Knackamson. Stanley is the founder of Knackamson Advisors, LLC. Chuck?
1: Thanks, Juliet. Thank you very much, Stanley. Holy moly. That's great. Returning this morning with our Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report is Lori Johnson. Laurie's going to be reporting on the new payment models that coders are going to be confronting in 2019. So good morning, Lori. Welcome back.
5: Good morning, Chuck, and Happy New Year to everyone out there listening. It looks like the new year is starting off with a bang. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or as we know them, CMS, has announced a change to the reimbursement methodologies for skilled nursing facilities as well as home health. Skilled nursing facilities will be utilizing a version of patient-driven groupings model, and it begins October 1, 2019. The Health Insurance Prospective Payment System code, or the HIPS code, will be based on physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech and language services, non-therapy ancillary comorbidities, which are based on the secondary diagnosis code as coded in ICD-10-CM, the nursing level based on resource utilization group information. The principal diagnosis will be used to determine the patient's clinical category And we will see the ICD-10-CM codes playing a more visible role in skilled nursing facility reimbursement. Um, The MDS will continue to be used, but they are making some modifications um, to that data set. Um, I know that, and I'm sure many people out there are putting out information for educational purposes, but I know that... The Pennsylvania Health Information Management Association is recording a webinar this week and will be posted on their website um, later this month. Home health patients will be reimbursed using patient-driven groupings model beginning January 1, 2020. There are 432 possible groups that are based on is it the initial or subsequent visit? the admission source, meaning is it community or is it institutional, the clinical grouping, which, again, is going to be based on a diagnosis code, functional impairment level, comorbidities, which are based on secondary diagnosis codes, and then there is another payment adjustment that is based on cost and visit frequency. There is an open-door forum um, January 16th at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. And if you look at the handouts tab, I put a URL so that you can register for that session. As you can see, ICD-10-CM coding will play a more significant role in these two methodologies. So another concern for this year is establishment of quality and productivity standards For ICD-10CM, and we see information that's being published more regularly in the journal for the American Health Information Management. And as Stanley said, we talked about interoperability, so that will be um, another subject that we will be dealing with uh, from the HIM and the coding side. So lots going on for
2: 2019, and so hang on to your hat and let's get moving. So back to you, Juliet. Thanks so much, Lori. That was nationally recognized coding authority, Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck?
1: Thanks, Juliet. And Lori, thank you very much. And you can read Lori's reporting on this very important topic in today's edition of the ICD 10 Monitor News. Our lead story this morning is about one of the hottest topics in healthcare, and of course you know what that is, that's the social determinants of health. There's a new face, as you heard us mention earlier, of social determinants of health, and that's because more natural and mad made disasters, business closures and of course the loss of pensions for an increasing number of older folks, are creating a population of folks who are turning up at hospitals and clinics, probably yours. Here now to report our lead story is one of the nation's foremost authorities on social determinants' health, Ellen fink sam Good morning, Ellen. Welcome to the program.
6: Good morning, Chuck, and happy 2019, all. So 2018 was the year of social determinants, $1.7 trillion attributed to 5% of the population, ICD-10-Z code reimbursement amped up via use of non-physician documentation and new human trafficking T codes, 80% of payers evolving programming, and vertical mergers addressing education, housing, pharmacy, mental health, and fitness deserts. And drum roll please, over 50% of hospital readmissions from social determinants alone. Yes, you all heard me correctly. The race is on for hospitals to address these disruptors to health outcomes and costs. Now, for years, hospitals had deep pockets to support, finance, and provide care for their populations. But the current wave of socioeconomic issues now exceeds what organizations can provide, and we have those new faces, as you've been hearing about so far today. Victims of natural and man-made disasters, rural health regions, persons experiencing loss of income from a government shutdown, business closures, and yes, older adults who are losing passion, pensions. Women impacted by domestic violence, victims of social isolation and loneliness, members of the LGBTQ community abandoned by families and friends and social stigma, homeless veterans, adults living with disabilities, and human trafficking victims. The new mantra for hospitals, more reimbursement, resources, and less readmissions. Oh, my. With reimbursement, well, I'll be quick about those ICD-10 codes. Handouts for the Z and T codes, which you've heard me talk about incessantly, are in today's broadcast handout folder. Document about and use them. Next. Medicaid expansion is now at 37 states and counting with increased funding for opioids and substance abuse, rural communities, previously excluded programs for immigrants like Medicaid, SNAP, and Medicare's low-income subsidy program, and long-term services and supports for persons in the home and community-based settings. Proactive spending on and linkage to non-clinical services yields lower costs, less hospitalizations and readmissions, plus higher life expectancy, lower mortality, and lower prevalence of chronic diseases. Education, a major social determinant. Over 20% of Medicaid beneficiaries, lack a high school diploma or GED, with several Medicaid MCOs now covering GED test prep, coaching, and testing fees. Rather than paying monthly fees to cover members' health costs, some states are now implementing policies for health plans to share in savings they can demonstrate. And if this sounds familiar, yep, you've got it. Hello, value-based purchasing. Incentives abound for insurers. One great example, the CAPABLE program, Community Aging in Place, Advancing Better Living for Elders, offers 10 home visits over five months from healthcare professionals to low-income older adults. Program cost, $2,825 per, per person. Saving, $22,000 per person. It's been implemented in 22 cities plus 11 states with rural populations. Readmissions, well, we've heard about $566 million in penalties already slated for 2019. Medicare has finally equalized the penalty playing field for safety net hospitals, and those penalties will be halved for these institutions. A 3% increase is slated for specialty hospitals, with nursing homes also being scrutinized, and Lori mentioned that earlier. 73% of SNFs saw readmission penalties up in 2018. They perform worse on readmissions from increased provider pressures to shorter, shortened lengths of stay. Patients transfer in sicker and often discharge home prematurely. Many live on fixed incomes and struggle with, yep, the social determinants of health. The patient-driven payment model, as Lori described, will replace the RUGS model come 2020 with five categories, nursing, non-therapy, ancillary, physical, occupational, and speech therapy. And like most CMS funding initiatives, well, time will tell how this payment shift will play out. Lots more happening on the horizon, so stay tuned and please read my article in this week's ICD-10 Monitor for more details on the social determinants. Back to you,
2: Juliet. Wow. Lots to think about. Thank you so much, Ellen. That was Ellen Fink-Samnick. Ellen is one of the nation's foremost authorities on social determinants of health. Chuck?
1: Thanks, uh, Juliet. And thank you again, Ellen, very much. And you can read Ellen's exclusive reporting on the social determinants of health in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. And now's the time for one of our very popular segments here on Talk to Enthusiast called Doc Talk. And once again, here is Dr. Juliet Bukarty-Hopkins.
2: Clinical validation denials is what I want to talk about, and this sometimes involves the validity of a diagnosis and also coding rule. Assessment and appeal optimally involves four subsets of the hospital team, the first being clinical documentation improvement or CDI, the second being coding, the third, the contracting office, and the fourth being your friendly neighborhood physician advisor. You need to know precisely what is within each payer contract when it comes to appeals. Timeframes, methods, and opportunities for escalation should all be identified. At My Health System, working closely with contracting opened a whole new strategy for appeals, and here's how we do it. When a denial is received, the original clinical documentation specialist, or CDS, reviews it along with the chart. In instances such as protein-calorie malnutrition, the supervisor of dietary services may also be consulted. Then, the CDS provides recommendation to appeal or accept the denial. For a second-level or telephonic appeal with a third-party reviewer contracted by some payers, our CDI supervisor and coding lead become involved. They review all denials and appeals that have come thus far, the patient's chart, and any electronic communication or collaboration between the CDS and the coder before the initial claim was dropped. The entire medical record is re-reviewed, looking specifically for how the diagnosis is supported and any possibly conflicting documentation. Days prior to a telephonic appeal, a spreadsheet is created and shared with the team. This spreadsheet includes demographic patient information, the diagnosis in question, recommendation to appeal the denial or not and clinical information, which supports appeal or shows the lack of clinical information to effectively appeal. For denials with more of a coding focus, the coding lead and the original coder create an argument based on coding rule. In some instances, cases are appealed by the coder originally are found by the CDI supervisor and or myself as a physician advisor to lack the level of conviction needed to support the diagnosis. My coding lead remarked that this is expected, as some cases are borderline in nature and, quote, deserve the benefit of clinical insight and experience, end quote. During the telephonic appeal, I am joined on the line by the CDI supervisor, coding lead, coding supervisor, and a member of the contracting team. I summarize the clinical findings and supporting criteria met for the denied diagnosis. Usually, this is followed by a conversation between our team and the third-party reviewer's medical director. Since starting this process in 2017, We have appealed 130 cases telephonically, with 55% successfully overturned, either immediately or following tertiary review. We've lost 16%, and in 30% of the cases, we agreed with the denials. At the current time, 15% of our cases are still pending tertiary review. While tedious and time-consuming, we have stuck to our guns with this process and participate in scheduled telephonic appeals at least once a month, on occasion, we are notified that all or most of our upcoming cases for discussion have been overturned before the call even happens, which is always good news. I want to extend my sincere thanks to Carrie Termont and Bridget Meisner for detailing their processes in preparation for this piece. Both requested that I emphasize this process would not work without strong cooperation and respect between the CDI team, coding team, and myself as the physician advisor. Additionally, this kind of collaboration takes not only talent and leadership, but also a considerable amount of time. Try to make it apparent to your hospital's leadership that for this process to work smoothly and produce favorable results, all three must be cultivated. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Julian, very much. And by the way, you can read her outstanding reporting on this subject in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. We've asked our panelists to stick around for a roundtable discussion. Today's Talk to Tuesday, and we want to take this moment to answer some of your questions. Juliet, uh, there's a question from Sharon that's up there in the Q&A tab. Sharon says, Dr. Hopkins, are these concurrent denials that telephonic appeals are being used?
2: No, these are actually denials that many times um, are from an uh, episode or a hospitalization six months or even longer. So these are this is after the fact, and this is also usually after we've appealed via regular letter appeal um, one or even two times. And then within those contracts, as we learned from our Contracting office, we found that we had this additional level that we could advance to. And so that's where we've really found a lot of success because before that was kind of unknown to us, and now that's how we're pursuing and what we're seeing that we can overturn a great number of them that way.
1: Very good. Thanks very much. That's going to be a wrap for our 352nd edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And Julia and I want to thank our panelists today. Lori Johnson, Timothy Pell, Stanley Nockerson, and our special guest, Alan Fink-Samnick. And of course, I want to thank Dr. Julia Dugarte-Hopkins for sitting in today for Dr. Erica Reamer. And once again, a reminder that you can read her outstanding reporting on the need for collaboration to avoid clinical validation. And I also to find her reporting in today's ICD-10 Monitor News. I wanted to remind you all that you can listen to us on Talk 10 Tuesday Podcast anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher app, Spotify, and Google Play. And don't forget to be with us this coming Thursday for the ICD-10 Monitor in Port Webcast on treating acute kidney disease. It's coming your way at 30 p.m. Eastern. And you can save $25.00 using the coupon code TUESDAY. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Tuck 10 Tuesday at ICD-10 Monitor. Thank you again for being with us. Have a great week, everybody.
0: Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.